0: just wonderful to worship here this evening. A beautiful day we've had and we're able to come together and worship together this evening. It's just wonderful. And we're going to do that as we continue in Philippians. We're in Philippians chapter one. So if you have your Bible this evening, please do open it with me. Philippians chapter one. And we're going to read this evening from verse 12 through to verse 30. So verse 12 through to verse 30 as we continue in Philippians, Philippians chapter one. Paul continues to write here. Remember, he's in prison as he writes this letter to the church at Philippi. Verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. I want to pause just for a moment. We see God's sovereignty, sovereignty at play here in the passage. Paul is resting in God, in God's plan, and God's ways. And he still has joy in this suffering. He's able to rejoice in it. And he's celebrating the fact that God is still in control. He knows that all things work together for good. Verse 15 I'm gonna pause again just for a moment here. See, Paul is, he's having his name dragged through the muck, so to speak. People are slandering him, and what does he do? He doesn't take this opportunity to try and re-correct recorrect him, or or to set the record straight. Instead, he simply says, it's for Jesus, it's all for Jesus. It's, uh, the most important thing, verse 18, is that Christ is proclaimed, and in that he rejoices. So, picking up again at the bottom of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it, is, as it is for my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us here this evening. We, we see here that Paul rejoices in the fact that he's in prison because even though he's in prison, the whole Roman imperial guard, they get to hear about Jesus. That, that the people in Rome are hearing about Jesus precisely because he is in prison. Now, As we think about this passage this evening, I have felt the weight of this passage this week to live as Christ, to die as gain. We're really going to zoom in on that. And if we're putting a title on this evening, it's this Living for Jesus. It's the only way to live, and it's the only way to die. Living for Jesus, the only way to live, it's the only way to die. And this evening, I have been excited about preaching this passage because it is the very heartbeat of what it means to be a Christian. You see, in this passage, there is real power for us. The truth is here. What it means to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, it's unlocked for us right here. It's made clear and plain. But yet, with that comes great responsibility. There's great challenge as we listen to Paul here and as we reflect on him. As we, in a little while, will sing, Jesus, all for Jesus. Someone said to me as the service was starting, it's really easy to sing those words. It's a lot harder to mean them. Jesus, all for Jesus. Well, as we start to work through this this evening, what I want us to do, or what uh, I'm going to attempt to do is help us understand what it really means to be a Christian. You see, that's the key. We've got to be able to distinguish what is a Christian. So how are we going to do that this evening? Well, we're going to look at what it means to worship God, and then what does it mean to live for Christ and to die is gain. And I hope as we do that, we will unearth in each of us what it means to be a disciple, a follower of our Lord. Now, there are many misconceptions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We can say it in lots of different terms to be born again, to be saved, to be a disciple, to be a Christian. But what is it not? Well, being a Christian is not just some cultural or societal privilege. Just because we have grown up in a largely Christian culture doesn't mean that we are Christians. That doesn't mean that we're going to go and be with Jesus forever just because we have grown up in a society that claims to be Christian. Just because our parents have claimed to be Christians doesn't mean that that flows necessarily down to us. It's not just a ticket out of hell. We thought a little bit about that last week. You don't just obtain this one night at a gospel meeting where you put your hand up or you respond to something and then you sit back and relax and it means nothing else to you. That's not Christianity. It's not just some secret business. We often hear talked about like this. The me and the man upstairs, we'll sort it out. I've did my deal with the Lord. I've did my deal with the boss. It's between me and him. That's not Christianity. It's not just a date written on the front of our Bibles from when we were a toddler. It's not just keeping the rules. It's not some higher version of being a monk where we go through this process even though we really don't like it. It's certainly not those people who are good living for a living, trying to con others, but really they're only conning on themselves. It's not about the gain of wealth or health. It's not an insurance policy. It's not a way to find balance in your life, and it's not a way to make you a better person. Friends, tonight if we reduce Christianity and following Jesus down to this list of things, then I certainly want nothing to do with it. Why? Because it isn't good news. And yet too often in this country, in our churches, it has been misunderstood or shrunk down to this. You see, this type of Christianity that we have described, it doesn't sound like something to be joyful about. It certainly doesn't sound like freedom or peace or transforming. It sounds like drudgery. It doesn't taste sweet or life-giving. It doesn't make me want to sing and to rejoice this evening. It tastes more like dust or soil or muck than life-giving. And that's because it's not Christianity. So what does it mean to be born again, to be saved, to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, let's look at this church at Philippi. This little church at Philippi, they're in a Roman outpost. And they're not just a group of people who are going through the motions, half-hearted, half-committed, that Jesus is some sort of optional extra. Jesus is everything for these people. They are believers, but they're in this thriving Roman colony. They're surrounded by Roman soldiers who have retired, who are patriotic. They're mixing with all of these merchants that are coming from the east. Being a Christian wouldn't have been easy, but it was everything. So why do I have on my title page of the PowerPoint a percolator this evening, a coffee percolator? Because to live as a follower of Jesus, to be Christ-like, to live in his ways, is, is like coffee that percolates through the water. It moves in the water. It changes everything inside of it and around it. And so too, Jesus should change every part of us. We can't just push him off in the segment of our lives. Rather, Jesus comes in and he is everything. He is our Lord. That means he has the say in our lives. He is our savior, the one we need for eternal life. And he is our friend. He is for us and he is not against us. And for these Philippians to worship Jesus, that meant following him meant listening to the call of leave your nets and come follow me, or for the rich man to sell everything that he had to follow Jesus. You see, it's a heart issue as well as a head issue. Both go in tandem. Being a Christian changes your head and your heart. So tonight, is Jesus Lord, or is he just Lord of the leftovers in our lives? Or to ask it another way, what does it mean for you to worship God? What does it mean for us to come into this place and to worship Him? Look at verse 20. Paul says, It is my earnest hope and passion that with His body, whether in life or death, that He will honor the Lord. He will worship the Lord with all of Himself. Jesus will be honored, glorified, worshipped in life and in death. Paul's mission is to magnify Christ. Like holding a magnifying glass up right in front of Jesus and saying, Look at how great he is. Nothing to do about me, not to do about my name, my reputation, anything that I've done. It's all to do about Jesus. He magnifies him, showing Christ to be magnificent, to exalt him, to demonstrate that he is great. And why? Because he's convinced. He's convinced that Jesus is who he says he was. He's convinced that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That what happened on the cross and the resurrection is life-defining and eternal life-giving. That's why Paul can write at the very start, verse 1, he is a servant of Christ Jesus, united to Jesus. And this shapes Paul's life, and so it should shape ours. Verse 20, that Christ be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Christian worship, the inner essence of worship here, is cherishing Christ. Cherishing Christ as gain. Indeed, more gain than all the treasures we thought about this morning, than all the treasure in life can offer. Jesus is greater than family, career, retirement, fame, friends, family. Everything in this world, everything else is like empty racks. But we need to be convinced of this. You see, that's what we're talking about whenever we say power. Power here this evening. The power that transformed the Roman Empire, that turned it on its head, was this. Not people claiming Jesus as some optional extra. Not people going through the motions of worship. But people who see Jesus as their greatest treasure and they live for him. And thus, right at the heart of worship is this experience of knowing Christ as gain. We may be the poorest with our bank account, but if we are trusting in Jesus, we are the richest people on earth. Or to say it differently, we could say that it is savoring Christ. It is treasuring him. It is being satisfied with him. And we show that then as Christians in our bodies by what we physically do. And what we internally think. Everything is shaped by Jesus. And friends, we need to be convinced of this tonight. We need to be convinced of this truth that to actually be a Christian, we have to live our lives for Him, completely for Him. Because if we don't understand this, if we don't apply it to our hearts, to our lives tonight, then this church, it will go absolutely nowhere. Our denomination will have no future and will go nowhere. We will go nowhere. We will have no future. We are powerless without this because we would be without Christ. So no money, prestige, hobbies, family, jobs, health, sports, friends can be worth anything more than Jesus. Jesus is the only way to live. And what excites me about this Is that if we grasp this, if we truly believe it, are convinced of it, convicted by it, and live it out, then it transforms us. We become a different breed of people. We become Christ followers, and that sets us apart from everybody else in the world. We are different. We have different priorities, different actions, different reactions. We look at life differently. Paul, even though he's in chains, can say, My life is for Jesus. What does it matter if I have to suffer in this world? My life's for him. And as we gather here then, Sunday after Sunday, we are convinced about who Jesus is. And our songs and our prayers and our sermons are not mere traditions or duties. We see them as a means of communing with God, being with God, hearing from Him, being filled by Him. And so in this place, as we gather Sunday after Sunday, we want to praise Christ Because as we praise Christ, it shows him to be praised. Praising Christ is praising Christ. C.S. Lewis is really helpful on this. A little quote will come up on the screen. He says this I had noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge others to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? Whatever we praise, we invite others to join us. We've thought about it in other ways, haven't we? Talking about the steak. Whenever we go for a steak dinner, well, whenever we could go out for steak dinner and you find the ultimate steak, don't you tell all your friends? Unbelievable deal. The steak, unbelievable. You not get the likes of it anywhere else. And you bang on and you bang on about it for months, maybe even for years. Best steak in all the country and it could only have been a one-off wonder. But you share it with people. You're inviting them to praise with you. And what do we want people to praise with us? We want them to praise our King of Kings and our Lord of Lords. So what is your life? What is your future? What is your goal? Over the last couple of months, lots of people have been talking to me about Line of Duty. I don't know if anyone here at church has been watching Line of Duty. Some nodding, some people are nodding, okay? Line of Duty is this series that the BBC have been showing that everyone seems to be watching these days. If you haven't been watching it, it's about a, a police operation. There's this unit called SC 12. They investigate corrupt police officers. That's their, that's their duty, that's their role. And there's lots of plot twists and It's very very good, but one of the main characters, and it'll come up on the screen, is a guy called Ted Hastings, and some people are laughing and sniggering because they know that this is one of his favorite lines. Ted Hastings says this, I'm interested in one thing, and one thing only, Ben Coppers. Mm -hmm. His whole life, he says, in this series, is about finding corrupt police officers. That's all he wants to do. He's relentless in pursuing this. This is his life, he says, in the in the show. He wants to live to find corrupt police officers. He lives for his job. It means everything to him. Well, let's imagine tonight I had a picture of each of us on the screen. What would be inside the quotation marks? I'm interested. I'm living for one thing and one thing only. What would fill in the gap? Well, we know what Paul would say and we know that if we are Christian people, what we should say. For Paul, he says, to live, Christ. To die, gain. And in the original language, the word is is left out, so it makes it even more emphatic. To live, Christ. To die, gain. So we want us to think with the time that we have left, what does it mean to live for Jesus then? What does it mean to actually live for him? Well, living for Jesus means fruitful labor and death to self. Fruitful labor and death to self. Being a Christian isn't like jumping into a lazy river and hoping that it'll just carry us along to an eternal place of rest. But if we follow Paul's logic here, verse 20, as we thought about, shows his aim. Verse 21 summarizes that. And then in verse 22, he explains the practical outworkings of it. So if you leave here convinced tonight, to live as Christ, that is truly what it means to be a Christian, and you say to me, John, that's what I want to do, I want to live my life for Jesus, and I want to, and whenever I come to death, it is gain because of Jesus being my greatest treasure, that will be fantastic. But what does it actually mean? It can sound quite abstract, can't it? Hard to understand, to live as Christ, but what does that look like? Well, this fruitful labor, verse 21, what does this mean? Well, here Paul is in prison. He's tied to a Roman guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week, at a maximum of 24 inches away from this person. He has plenty of reasons for not being active in service, and yet he is living for Jesus. And I want you to know this evening that to live for Jesus doesn't require any qualifications. It's not just for the missionaries and the ministry students and for the ministers, but living for Jesus is for everyone. It's not just for the elite level. This is Christianity. So for the prisoner or the pensioner, the primary school child, the rich, the poor, the young, the old, those who've been saved 20 years or two years, living for Jesus means fruitful labor and death to self. There are no excuses. We could imagine Paul writing something like, I'm so frustrated here. I can't do the work that I need to. I need to get out of this jail. But instead, he sees that living for Jesus is bigger than our life circumstances. It doesn't matter what's going on around us. We're still committed to Christ. We don't just live for him for whenever times are good and whenever it's convenient, but we live for Jesus all of the time. It's a complete way of life. So in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our relationships, in our actions, in our reactions, it's living for Jesus. And don't get me wrong, we always seem to fall short of this, don't we? We might do it for a little while, but this is the fight of faith. We've got to keep going at this. We want to live for Christ. We have to live for him, labor for him, and die to self. So what could Paul do from the prison cell? Well, relatively little, many would assume. But he could talk to the guards. He could befriend them, evangelize them. He could pray, he could sing, he could read, he could write. Verse 25, Paul lives for the progress of others, to serve others so that they would have joy in their faith. No big crowds, no big conferences to preach to. So what does fruitful labor look like for you and for me? Well, you have to work that out. I have to work that out for ourselves and for myself. What does it look like? Because it's right at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. To be saved means that we serve him. So there is activity, labor, service. It's part and parcel of the faith. James chapter 2 verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? In verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Living for Jesus means fruitful labor. It means we will actively serve the Lord every day that he gives us. And for that to happen, for Christ, for us to live to Christ, then we must also die You see, there's no room for the old self. There's no room for me inside of this body anymore. We've got to put to death our old selves. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. So to live for Jesus is not some sentimental, trouble-free life, but it's the way of the cross. Killing the old man, the old woman. Being satisfied in Christ more than in the things of this world. And that's a heavy call for us. But if we want to live tonight, we have to know the way of the cross and to die. So nothing tonight is more precious than Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can take all this world, all that it has to offer, but give me him because tonight he is my savior. We gotta see what we face tonight without him. We've got to know what He's done for us. And we've got to cling on to Him. Tonight, if we're struggling or if we think we're thriving in the faith, it really doesn't matter because to live is Christ. He's either everything or He's nothing. Paul's words in chapter 3 of this letter, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything Everything is loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. To die to self and to live for him. Paul explains it a little bit further and we'll look at this just for a few moments, to die is gain. Why can he say that? Dying is gain. That sounds nuts. It doesn't sound right to us. But if we're convinced by this, if we know who Jesus is and what he says to be true, then dying is gain because dying is getting to be with Christ. So Paul here doesn't have a morbid death wish. He isn't thinking to himself, I'm going to end my life right now. Instead, he realizes that God is sovereign over life and death, and he uses this phrase to show us how valuable Jesus is. Verse 23, he desires to be with his Savior. He has a love for his Savior, a love that can hardly keep him away from his Savior. In life, everything about me, Paul says, is for him. In death, how amazing, I get to be with him. One commentator puts it like this. The greatest prophet will be to stand before Christ and to behold him as he is, the glory of heaven found in Jesus Christ himself. And so as Christians tonight, we must be convinced that when we die, we will be brought into the presence of God and for, that, that, and for us that is the most glorious and the most wonderful thing that we could ever get in this world. FM cash call that we taxed into or we hear it on the radios, 20,000 pounds. Friends, Jesus is worth so much more. The best Euro millions lottery ticket that you could ever find. Jesus doesn't even compare. Jesus is everything. And so Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Death for the Christian is always better than this world. Because death is not the end. It's only the beginning of forever with Jesus. A little way that I try and understand this in my own mind is I often think about it like this. The Christian life is like being in a field. And you're sent out into this field to work. Whether it's an orchard or a potato field or whatever it may be, and you're out in the field and there's lots of jobs that need done in the field. You have to fence the field and you have to pick up the stones in the field. And if it's a potato field, you're going to have to pull the spuds up out of the ground. And it's hard work in this field. That's the Christian life. And whenever you start out in the field, the first day in the field, everything's great. It's really good. Just like whenever you're young, everything's great. Everything's really good. But the longer you're in the field, the harder it gets, the more pain comes into your body the hotter the sun feels, the more struggling there is in life. And you just want to go home. You just want the shift to end. You want to be able to come into the presence of of whoever around the family table and and to have a great meal, to be refed and to be relieved of all your duties. Job done. Well, that is the Christian life. We're out working currently in the field and the older that we are, often the harder it is, the more our bodies are aching and failing us. But one day soon, the Lord's going to call, the Master's going to call, and He's going to call us by name. He's going to say, come on, your job's done, come on. It's dinner time. Come on into our family house. Come home and rest. Come and be with me. To live as Christ. To die is gain. And so as we face death, Christ can be praised in our death because we praise him above all else. And Christ will be magnified in our death when we're so satisfied in him. Friends, this is Christianity. This is the call to follow Jesus. To live as Christ, to die as gain. Paul's been building this as we close here this evening. Paul's been building to this point throughout these opening verses He's been telling us that our joy is flowing out of the fountainhead that is being united to Jesus. We're united to each other in our cause. We're united in our desire. And as if to make it so clear, he gives us this phrase right in the middle that if we get lost in the fog of the Christian life, if everything around us becomes blurry and we aren't really sure what it means anymore, that we can go to this committed to memory to live as Christ, to die is Gain. And therefore, Jesus is our joy. When we are most satisfied in Jesus, then he will be most glorified in us. And that's all we want, isn't it? Whenever we gather into this place, that's why I love coming here on a Sunday, because we get to make much of Jesus. We get to lift his name high, exalt him. And for those who are in our meeting house or in the hall or watching online that don't yet know Jesus, we get to make much of who our king is that He is living, that He changes lives, and that you can know joy by trusting in Him. Friends, if you're not satisfied in Jesus here tonight, if He isn't your greatest treasure, the source of your joy, then is He really your Savior? Paul says, and it's going to come up in screen for us, that his greatest aim was to live for Jesus. Tonight, I want us to see that Christ would be seen as great in our lives, supremely great. That is why God created us and saved us, to make Christ look like what he really is, and that is supremely great. That's all we want to do. From now till he calls us home, whether it's this evening he calls us home, or tomorrow, or next week, or in 30 years' time, all we want to do is make Jesus great, to show others how great he is, how magnificent and wonderful and glorious and all-powerful he is, how he how he's saved us by his wonderful grace and transformed us and poured into our lives. That's all we want to do. And see, as we do that, people will see us as different, be attracted into what we have, and come to know our Savior. They will join our family. And so Paul writes this to encourage and to embolden the believers at Philippi. To live as Christ, to die as gain. May we live for him every day that he gives us.